Talk Vets Veterans Affairs with Doug Sandberg. That's coming up right here next at 7 o'clock at 98.5 FM WJFF. And good afternoon, or good evening, I should say. Once again, welcome to Let's Talk Vets. This program is produced by vets for vets. I'm your host, Staff Sergeant Doug Sandberg, USAF 1968-1972. Our mission is to provide news, entertainment, and information of particular interest to area veterans, active service members, and their families. We, of course, wish all of our listeners a very happy and healthy New Year. Our program tonight is dedicated to the heroes of the greatest generation, our World War II vets. Their ranks are fading quickly, and according to the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs statistics, 496,777 of the 16 million Americans in Washington of the 16 million Americans that served in World War II were alive in 2018. And the latest VA statistics state we are losing them at a rate of about 370 per day. As succeeding generations write their own chapters in history, and uh, we think about the lessons learned, mistakes, some are remembered and some are forgotten. And uh, we'll leave that to history to determine uh, which were right or which were wrong. I am a baby boomer as well. My father served in World War II, along with about 16 other American servicemen and women, and countless allies. They were united in a way we'll probably never witness again. Our foes were definable and identifiable. Our cause was common. The men and women who did the heavy lifting came from all walks to serve, fight, and sometimes to die. And as with all veterans of all conflicts, many of those returning were not the same on so many levels. So tonight, we honor our heroes of World War II. We were fortunate enough to have interviews with two remarkable people, one a veteran of the Royal Air Force and the other fought in the Battle on the Bulge. Reflecting back on that era, there are many things we've lost, some good, some bad. On the good side of history's ledger is an intangible quality that many young people possessed in the 40s and before. You could call it responsibility or perhaps maturity. Perhaps it was simply that the times and the events forced people to take responsibility on sooner. Whatever it was, in the end, it enabled our allies and the U.S. to defeat two formidable foes. But first, here are some notable dates in January. January 1st, of course, New Year's Day. Happy New Year. And January 19th is the Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Now, if you were listening to the radio in Britain in about 1939, you might have heard this. Mr. Vice President... Mr. Speaker, members of the Senate and of the House of Representatives, yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. Just to bring you up to date on the news of Europe, if you are just turning on your radios, Great Britain is now at war with Germany. Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain announced this fact in a broadcast at 6.15 New York time, 6.15 Eastern Daylight Time. A brief broadcast of about five minutes duration, which was carried over the CBS network. And the Prime Minister said that he had to tell, I have to tell you that we are now at war with Germany. We shall bring you further news as quickly as we have it, and we suggest that you keep tuned to your Columbia station. So you're 17 years old, you're walking home from high school, and suddenly above your head, 
you hear the roar of low-flying aircraft. You look up to discover the aircraft in question are engaged in a dogfight, one British, the other German. What would you do? Well, this event was the catalyst that dramatically changed a young woman's life in the early days of World War II. That young lady was Joan Page. And what she did may surprise you, but after meeting her, it doesn't surprise me a bit. And there was an experience that prompted you to drop out of high school and join the war effort with the RAF. Exactly. Tell us about that. I, when we were in school at 4 o'clock, we had an air raid every day. We, by 4 o'clock, we could hear the drone of the bombers overhead. It was a red alert. But since people were buried alive in the school's because of the air raids, I got permission to walk home. I walked home, and on the trip walking home, I was watching two fighters, enemy fighters, fighting one another, and as they came low, I was thought they were going to shoot me, but they didn't, and I looked up and I said, they're not much older than me, that's it. Why am I at school? So I signed the British Air Force papers and left school. And so you went on to training, and what did you train for? I trained for radio theory, wireless Morse code, aircraft equipment, and uh, procedures, codes, and so on. And I trained for six months in the Midwest at a place called Khan in Wiltshire, which, which is a cheese place, and it was a gorgeous smell every night. In the, <laughs> so I, I trained at Carnley in Wiltshire. It was a school, and I was there six months learning the, the procedures of aircraft, and they posted me to training command to Cranwell in the Midlands. Cranwell is the cradle of the British Air Force. The college is there. It's where Prince William got his wings, and it's a wonderful school. I taught at Cranwell. I was an instructor teaching cadets. So what was your rank? Corporal. Corporal, okay. Is that, is that, was that your rank through the whole, uh, it was. Your whole service? And I had, above my two stripes, I had the Sparks, which is a Spark badge, which means you are a wireless operator. That's, what a fantastic story. Um, And I'm looking here, uh, is this your husband in this picture? It's my husband, that's the cadet I married, and that's me. And you met him where? In, I actually met him on a bus coming home from Lincoln back to camp. Okay. And he got on the bus that I was on. And you said he was a cadet? He was a cadet. How long, how long did you uh, see him before you decided to get married? He proposed to me within six weeks. A man of action. He was. Okay. Well, we didn't know whether we were going to live overnight. It was a, a, a very serious affair, and he was—he wanted to spend the rest of my life with me, and so that's what happened. But because he was coming to do exercises in the in in the air air squadron, uh, the training squadron, we girls, we took over the cabin from the men. We had to do their air exercises, so we knew how to mark them. So I did his air exercises before he did, uh, and we then knew how to mark them when they were up in the air. We got their log books, and we put them through the procedures they had to do. So that, that gave you an opportunity to have a little fun. Did you have some fun with him on that? Well, no, I didn't talk to him about business. Oh, okay. What was his job in the RAF? He was a navigator bomber wireless. He came to Cranwell to learn wireless. And we were teaching them wireless, the procedures, 
and if they could, if they got air sick, for instance, they were CT, cease training. So we put them through the rudiments of, you know, the find that they could actually be a wireless operator. The navigator bomber wireless was the only person beside the pilot on that plane. It was a special plane. It was made of wood. It was light. It it was a rocket firing plane. And they had a pilot on board to take the person, and the person was a navigator, bomber, wireless. So he did his navigating in Canada after he'd been to Cranwell. He did his navigating in Canada and his uh, wireless with us. Did you go with him to Canada? No, I did not. I couldn't. I was at bomber command by now. Okay. We were very, very busy. So how long did you actually serve, end up serving? Three and a half years. Three and a half years. Married women. I was married by now, and married women were first out. Angela also suggested that I ask you about bomber codes. Well, yes. When I was finished from training command, they posted me to bomber command, and I was then part of the bomb raids. We had the aircraft all lined up at night at 12 o'clock, all ready to take off. We used to go to the tower to brief the wireless operator that was going to be on board that plane. So I never looked at them. I didn't I didn't want to know which one was on P for Peter and which one was on Q for... I couldn't take that. It was too emotional. Because when we couldn't get him back at 3 o'clock in the morning and I'm crying, saying, has anybody hurt from P? Has anybody... You see, because yeah. we had six operators. Yep. And I, it was too emotional. So I tried not to look at them, but we briefed them. They had rice paper orders with red ink, and as we talked to them at 10 to the hour and half past the hour, they would tear that off and eat it. And really? that was such a communication in those days, very primitive, but the point is we didn't have the wonderful things that we have today in communications. That was communication. They tore off the papers and ate them so in case the bomber went down. So how long were you? did you remain in, in Britain uh, after the war? I was 33 years old, and my husband came to me and said, we are bankrupt as a country. The war has bankrupt us. We should go to the North Americas. He had trained in Canada. He knew all about Canada. He had friends in Canada, and we emigrated to Canada in 1957, taking two sons and Angela, the girl that you've met here, she was one year old, and the three of us accompanied my husband, and we went to live in Canada. So what did uh, he do after the war? He was a vice president for Procter & Gamble, which was Thomas Edley in England. And uh, he was a vice president of uh, Warner Lambert as well. He, he, he was always top of... He, he passed out top of the course in Canada, and he was given special papers and so on. He's always been the head of everything, you know. So that was his life. He was a, he, he learned to be a pilot as well in his civilian street life, and uh, he was in the Boy Scouts. He was the provisioner of the Boy Scouts. We met the Queen, we met the Governor of General of Canada, because he put a lot of time into scouting. So the, the boy, you said the Boy Scouts, is that the same organization that oh, we have that, in the U.S.? Absolutely the same. Okay. It's absolutely, absolutely the same. When he was a boy, he was an only child at home, and the Boy Scouts were a big part of his life. They gave him their, his own age group, and, you know, the kind of things that you you like as a child, mixing an only child. And so he paid it back. He joined the Boy Scouts to pay back what they had done for him. Um, I had, I have two sons that are Eagle Scouts. He and was I, a King Scout. Is that what it, 
Okay, so it's what is that? Thing. It is. Okay. It's exactly the same thing. A king scout, not a king scout today. It's a queen scout today, of course. Okay. But he got the king scout, yes. Do you miss Britain? I do. When was the last time you were back? Six years ago. Six years ago. And uh, I suppose at your age there wasn't a lot of family left, is there? I have a sister back there. Really? My mother and father were still there, and my mother and father came up to Canada to stay with us, and uh, so did his mother and father. So we had a lot of interfacing, which was good. The war was over, and we were all building our new lives. We thought it was the war to end all wars, but of course it wasn't. Okay, so I understand from your daughter that you were once a guest of the Queen. Yes, we were invited to the palace for tea, my husband and I, and uh, they, uh, Lord Lieutenant came to me and said, immediately the Queen comes towards you. You shake a hand and you curtsy, drop a low curtsy. You pull your left leg round. Well, we all knew how to curtsy. So as she came towards me, I curtsied. I had a terrible job to get my heel out of the grass because we were on the grounds of Buckingham Palace. But uh, I talked to her for quite a while, and I was. T she asked me, oh, you live in America now? I said, yes, we do. So she said, uh, where are you now? I said, oh, we're staying at the Royal Air Force Club in Piccadilly. And I said to her, there's a beautiful photograph of your grandmother in the hall. Oh, so there is, she said. That was Queen Mary, George V's wife, her grandmother and her grandfather. And she, we talked about that, and we talked about the Boy Scouts, and uh, we talked well, about... This is the same, the same queen that's there today. Oh, of course. Yes. She was a young lady then. Yes, yes. And uh, Thatcher was there, uh, and Margaret Thatcher was there. It was very nice, and the tea was delicious, of course. But we weren't allowed cameras inside the palace. So, of course, we have no photographs of inside the palace. We have a photograph of as we walked out of the palace. Well, considering the, uh, the technology that we have today, have we gone ahead or backwards? We've gone ahead, but the wireless theory is dangerous. And I have to tell people, the wireless theory is dangerous. It's radiation, and it gets to your brain. The less wireless you can have the better. Analog with wires is better. But so land, landline. Landline. Please, landline. Radio is, well, wireless is very dangerous. The cell, the cell phones. The cell phones are dangerous. They are really dangerous. The more people understand about that. If anything as, uh, that I served and gave my life to is for people to realize what the hell they're doing with wireless. They are treating it now when an extra that they don't need. You don't need when your fridge tells you to uh, you want bananas. How ridiculous that is. And that is giving people illness. What in... In some time, it could be five years, everybody will be ill. Then who is going to work? Who's going to work to feed the rest of the population? Nobody. It will be, it, we will wither. Very and good point. Make sure the Russians are not doing that because they'll take over then. You know, they, 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 they're sensible. So here's the million-dollar question. If you could change something about your life, would you? And if so, what would it be? It would be to make sure people exercise. I've exercised all my life, water aerobics three times a week. I've had hip surgery at 92, and they said my bones were in great condition. Please look after yourself. Exercise. That is one thing I would like. The other thing is to don't live dangerously. It's a toxic world today. And everybody is living dangerously. They keep these cell phones in their pockets. It's just ridiculous what they're doing. They don't need Alexa. They just get these Alexa phones and they say, please tell me who was married to who in 1942. And she gives them the answer. But that is an oscillating wireless that's pumping into their house. They shouldn't have it. It's just ridiculous. I'd like to change that.
Well, I thank you for your time. It's fascinating. There's not many of you folks left. No, I know. I realize. When I looked at the funeral yesterday of Mr. Bush, he had a parallel life to my husband and I, serving in the forces, working towards the, the community that we were building. We thought we were building a community of healthy people. It's not so. Yes. It's not so. They are, this generation, my son-in-law died, I have two sons-in-law who have died, and their age group are dying. In their graduating class, Alex's class has lost five boys, all from different silly things, unnecessary things. So I would like to think that that would better well, thank you so much for your insight and your knowledge. It's it's fascinating, and and this will. Uh, I'm sure our listeners are going to enjoy this interview immensely. Well, thank you very much. And that was Joan Page, uh, fabulous interview from. Uh, a person who actually lived the hard times in London, constant barrage and bombardment, and um, just you can't even put it in words, but she did a pretty good job. I think you'll agree. You are listening to WJFF in Jeffersonville, and I'm your host, Staff Sergeant Doug Sandberg, and this is, of course, Let's Talk Vets. Mr. Vice President, Mr. Speaker, members of the Senate and of the House of Representatives, yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. And that, of course, was Franklin Roosevelt delivering the message that uh, we were at war with Japan. Towards the end of the war, uh, Donald Mayhus, now of Gramsville, was 18, pursuing higher education when, like so many other Americans, he received greetings from Uncle Sam. So in 1944, Donald reported to duty and would soon find himself in the midst of one of the most consequential and the second bloodiest battles of World War II, the Battle of the Bulge. As I say, my name is Donald V. Mayhus. The last name, it's Norwegian. I'm totally Norwegian background, and uh, I grew up in the Midwest. So I was born on... uh, uh, February 9th, 1925, in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Again, a big Norwegian stronghold. And uh, so then we, we lived there a year, and my father was an, an academic, and we moved to Ohio for several years, about three years, I think. And then about 1929, when I was four years old, we moved to Maryville, Missouri which is in the northwest, uh, uh, northwest corner of Missouri. And it's a city of about 5,000. And my father was the head of the sociology department of the Northwest Missouri State Teachers College. And we lived there for 10 years, although uh, storm clouds were brewing in Europe at the same time. And uh, <laughs> I was a child, and... Uh, it didn't affect me then, but it soon would, of course. And then in 1939, my father w- was appointed to, to be president of the Winona State Teachers College in Winona, Minnesota. And it's on, in the uh, southeast corner of the state on the Mississippi. And uh, it's a beautiful, lovely town. And those are some of the happy years of my life. So I finished my uh, last two years of high school there. Got to, oh, I think, 12th highest in a class of 282. So 
I did well academically, and I had uh, I gave parties often, and I was known, began to be known as the Elsa Maxwell of my hometown because I knew how to throw parties. Oh, we had other night parties. We had classical music parties, played only classical music. Another time we had a bad taste party. Everyone had to come dressed in bad taste, and that was a lot of fun. And then the next year, first year of college, I uh, went to the Winona State Teachers College where my father was president. Then, of course, war was brewing and had started, and we listened to the news on, on uh, I was home on Pearl Harbor Day, and I heard that, and uh, Roosevelt's Pearl Harbor address. And uh, as a matter of fact, I... Uh, and I had a, was in a speech class, and we all had to memorize this speech. And I memorized President Roosevelt's Pearl Harbor address and gave that to the class. When I was, well, when I was just 18 years old, then I got my draft notice, and I was rather excited in a positive way. I was, what I what year was that? Uh, that would be in 1940. Three, I guess. Anyway, uh, I w was called to report to Fort Snelling in Minneapolis, which I did uh, later that, uh, uh, I guess later in the spring or early summer. And uh, I, I took my uh, physical and passed the flying colors. My health is excellent, and still is. And I might say, now, now, now that I'm a veteran, I uh, get all the health care I need from the Veterans Administration. And I've often told people, and uh, I say I'm getting much better health care from the Veterans Administration than I ever did in New York City, if you can imagine that. Well, you earned it the hard way. Well, anyway, when I got in the, I got in the Army, and... Uh, so let me ask you a question. Sure. Of course, if, any, anytime. If, if you hadn't been inducted or drafted, would you have enlisted? No. Okay. No. <laughs> no. Fair enough. <laughs> no, I would not. But when you were when you were inducted, you went with it uh, with a sense of adventure. You gladly accepted it. I, I'm not quite sure what, but but I know when I got my draft notice, I was positively excited about okay. it, and uh, I didn't. Uh, I wasn't a draft protester or anything. I didn't. Uh, to Canada or anything like that. I, I just accepted it. It's my duty. After Fort Snelling was there about a week or two, and then I and some of my buddies were transferred to North Camp Hood in the middle of Texas. That's about 50 miles uh, uh, west of Waco. And uh, it was... Oh, it was about the middle of July, it was the hottest time of the year, and contrast that with Minnesota, you know. And it's a marvel that I stood up under all that. Now, earlier that year, um, I had taken an examination which would have uh, authorized me to study engineering if I passed it. ASTP, Amer Army Specialized Training Program. So I passed that, all right. And so after the uh, 13 weeks of uh, basic training, uh, then the fellows, uh, mostly were ASTP fellows, were shipped uh, shift to uh, different uh, places, uh, you know, Harvard, Yale, uh, California, all, all sorts of places, and, and I said, thank God, I'll get out of Texas. Well, what did they do but send me 50 miles uh, east to Waco, to Baylor? That was far better than where I'd been because uh, I was in, a, uh, in an army camp that had been thrown up hastily, and there was no running water in our barracks. We had to go to a latrine 50, 100 feet from the... Uh, Barracks. We had taken over the Baylor University, so we had regular dormitory, and we had uh, people take 
doing all the chores and the food and all that sort of thing. Would your job would have been with the combat engineers, or what would you have done? I don't know. Oh, you don't know. <clears throat> I, I, you know, you, they don't always tell you in the Army, and uh, I guess, well, you're in the military, you know. They uh, always told us exactly what was going on in the Air Force. Really? No. Well, <laughs> oh, I see, okay. I, I don't know. Anyway, it was fine, and my buddies were, you know, they had passed the examination, too, so after four and a half months, they announced that the... United States needed infantry soldiers more than they needed engineers. So we were all uh, sent to uh, to uh, different uh, army camps, and I was uh, sent with some of my buddies. Did you finally get out of Texas? <laughs> Not right away, no. Uh, no. Uh, then I was sent to northeast corner of Texas, uh, near Paris, Texas, and Camp Maxi, which which was much more civilized place, water in the barracks, and and so I did training there for oh, I don't know how many months. And this is 1944, and uh, so we uh, were there, and then and I think in September of '44, uh, 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 we were put on a train and taken to Camp Miles Standish near Boston, Massachusetts. And we spent, uh, I don't know, a week or two there, and we got, I got passed to Boston a couple of times. And uh, then, <laughs> one, uh, be night at night, uh, we were all loaded onto troop transports, and we were sailed to Europe. In Scotland, we loaded onto trains to the southern coast of of uh, England to a Lyme Regis, and we were all uh, billeted in different hotels and rooming houses. So it was very, very nice. And we spent I don't know a couple of weeks there or so, something like that. And so then, on uh, I guess the middle of November. We uh, were went to well the southern coast of, of England and then boarded troop transports to uh, France. We may have got out at La Havre. I'm not sure, but La Havre had been terribly bombed. Uh, coming to the beach and then walking to a train, and, uh, and during the night we uh, went through uh, northern. Uh, France, and I wrote down in my diary all, all the places I went to. Now, the diary, that's an interesting thing. I had been keeping a diary since I was 10 years old, and there, very soon after I got in the Army in Fort Snelly, Minnesota, the word came down that we were not allowed to keep diaries in the Army, and I suppose the reason being because Things we would think be perfectly harmless if uh, the, fell in the wrong hands, like what military exercises we did or what kind of food we were getting and things like that. Uh, it, it would be to our detriment to, for the enemy to know that. So I said, and what in the world am I going to do? I have to give up eight years of tradition of keeping a diary? And then I hit upon the idea of writing a letter home every day. Letters were not censored, and uh, I sent it to my father. So you're in England? Yeah, in England. And uh, so, uh, and then about the uh, middle of uh, November in 44 to, to France, by trucks, we were taken up to uh, the Siegfried Line so we were on the Siegfried Line for several weeks, selling every day, you know. So we endured that. And this continued until uh, December 16th, 1944, the, the fatal, fatal, fatal day. And at 5.30 in the morning, 
their tremendous artillery barrage, and we didn't know, we had a foxhole, we didn't know uh, if it was uh, the Americans firing at the Germans or the Germans firing at, uh, at us. And we soon found out it was the Germans firing. It was the opening salvo of the Battle of the Bulge, 530, uh, December 16, 1944. Just, we were deliberately not informed. So you, you know. guys were all new, fairly new guys? Oh, yeah. Oh, and yeah. Were, how, how about, were you equipped for the climate, for the cold? Did you have uh, you No, not entirely. I, I don't think we were pro- properly equipped for the cold. The main thing, one thing I found is that if your feet are not cold and your chest is not cold, you weren't probably weren't too miserable. So I made every effort to keep my chest warm and, your feet. and, and my feet. So I remember that we got overseas, everything was censored. And so then, as I said, I devised this thing of writing uh, uh, letters home practically every day, leaving out anything that would be military. Or could, we could say what country we were in. We could say somewhere in Belgium. If we were in an infantry outfit and, and the Battle of the Bulge started and we're somewhere in Belgium, <laughs> damn good chance that we'd be involved in that. So a week or so after the Battle of the Bulge had begun and I had any chance to write anything, you know, and uh, and so I wrote, when I finally was able to write a letter, I said, I'm, I'm sorry I haven't written to you in the last week or so, but we've been pretty busy here, and uh, pretty busy was being damn near killed by the Germans. So, uh, and so then, uh, uh, oh, and I was doing the outpost set, that day and, uh, and about noon and some, one of my buddies came running down the hill to me said get back to company headquarters we're leaving in 15 minutes and I said, so I ran up the hill and got my whatever I had backpack and then we start out and we marched I don't know several hours and spent the night in a uh, forest and I remember getting some pine boughs to put over us to sort of protect us. And the next day, we uh, marched further, and I heard two of the officers arguing. Uh, one of them said, this is, this is just hopeless, let's surrender. Another one said, no, I think I know how we can get out of here. And uh, so we heeded the one who said, I think they know how we can get out of here. And uh, if we had surrendered, we were just 10 miles from Malmody, where they had that massive massacre of nearly 100 American POWs captured. And there were rules of war that if you capture, you're supposed to treat them civilly, not to shoot them dead, and that they were shot dead. And a few escaped, and they could tell what happened. So we... Uh, Murring and we went to, and Americans were supposed to be there, we thought. But unbeknownst to us, they had evacuated the town, the town the night before, and Germans had taken over. And as we approached the town to link up with the Americans, people in the town started firing on us. And I don't know what the hell the officers were thinking, but the orders keep on going, try to... Uh, take that town and uh, that's when oh we lost a lot of fellas someone crossed the road and got to a barn and as things evolved the Germans trained a machine gun on the road and we couldn't get over there to help them and they couldn't they were taken prisoners of war and then at the end of the war uh, we were at a place in southern uh, south east Germany and some of our people found them. They were okay, you know. So that that was that was something. And then at the uh, so, so we, we, I, I had several of our foxhole buddies. Uh, one was a very depressing guy to be with, and there were three of us in a foxhole. I guess my second foxhole buddy was just great, tremendous sense of humor, and we were lie there at night, the front line 
laughing and carrying on, you know. And if the Germans had come by, they could have dropped a grenade in there. That would be the end of us. But we didn't think about that too much. And in fact, someone, a group of soldiers did come by. And one of them recognized my voice. He was from another company. He said, this is Jones from F Company. We're going to patrol now. We'll be back at 1 o'clock in the morning, so we hear us. Don't shoot, it will be us. <laughs> we're talking so loud, he recognized my voice. I hardly knew him. And uh, he, he was just a great guy. I don't know whatever happened to him. I was transferred to headquarters platoon, and the shelling was so bad that some of the people in the rear, rear echelon were injured by shell, including the mail clerk. He was either killed or injured. And so they needed a new mail clerk rather quickly for so the. So that's what I was going to ask you. So you, how did your mail get from the trenches to wherever it was? I going guess to get what home? we did, oh I think what we did we'd probably give it to uh, one of the officers, and then the officers then and there, not immediately but before they sent it further they would censor it because they knew the fellows in the situation, and uh, so. My officer, the company commander, and the first lieutenant—they knew that I was writing letters every day, probably, probably rather unique. And so, when they needed a new mail clerk, I had to deliver a message, an inconsequential message of my own, to them and their foxhole. And as I approached the foxhole, I heard one of them say, as though they'd been considering something. Well, then maybe we should send Mayhus back to be a mail clerk. I stopped dead in my tracks. I said, this is one conversation I do not want to interrupt. And I turned on my heels, <laughs> message or no message. And then a few moments later, they called me over and said, uh, Mayhus, get your gear together. We're going to send you back to be a mail clerk. So I threw my stuff together hastily. And we had a jeep driver, and they told me about the jeep. I got the jeep with him, and there's a road going from where we were down, down to the town where the rear echelon was in. He knew enough about things so that instead of going down that road where the Germans could see it, going straight down a road and aim their their artillery at us, so. You know, in ten seconds we would be in Seoul and someplace. So he zigzagged all over a meadow, going down the hill, and uh, with shells dropping all around. And then every ten yards further from the front, we got the safer we were. And after we were uh, several hundred yards away, then we were, were quite safe. The rear echelon, the, the cooks and supplies, were in a house. And I went in the house, and there was a fire in the fireplace. And the first house I'd been in in over a month. Oh, I just sat there all evening by that fire. It was such a relief. Now, the former mail clerk, he was very good. And he kept all the information in his head. Well, that didn't help a new mail clerk. <laughs> and, you know, you were, uh, for instance, I had to divide... Uh, mail by platoons, three platoons in headquarters platoon, and then I had another rules and regulations, uh, and what to do if uh, a person was killed, what I'd do with his mail, and and then after about oh, several weeks, I was still just a, a private first class, and I was walking down the main road to to higher headquarters to get s something about the mail. And someone from that who knew what was going on, he said, uh, Good morning, Corporal Mayhus. And I said, I'm not a corporal. Uh, he said, Well, the orders have come down this morning that you have been promoted to corporal, which meant that I had been permanently made a mail clerk. So, uh, well, great, great. So I knew that I was safe for the rest of the war. So, since the company commander remember his name John Haymaker he was from Kansas very near where I grew up after the war I sent him a Christmas card every year because he saved my life 
at the end of the war, six months on the front line, of the 182 men we had, 180 men we had in the company, we only had 10 of the original company with us, only 10. And that shows how terribly dangerous the frontline infantry outfit is. And then we, we got to the Rhine, and uh, our division was in the first to the Remagen Bridge. It was the only, only bridge that was still standing. Hitler had ordered all bridges destroyed, and someone goofed there. So our company uh, was one of the first to go over the bridge. So by that time, the Americans had built a pontoon bridge, and uh, the Remagen Bridge was still standing. And then I was up there an hour or so, tending to mail orders and things like that. And then I had to go back across another bridge, two bridges. And we went around sort of a curve and a in the hill and the, and the river. I couldn't see the Ramagan Bridge because of the change in the topography. Well, the reason I couldn't see the Ramagan Bridge because in the hour or two I was up there, it had collapsed. Big question there was a Ruhr pocket, and a lot of Germans were there, and the Americans tried to surround them to capture them, and we did. So I, I wrote thousands of surely relieved Germans were captured because that was the end of the war for them, you know, and they were safe. Right after the war, ten days after the war, when censorship was lifted in May of 45, I wrote a 20-page letter home that really spells it all out. Okay, VE Day, and then uh, and we're sweeping through south, southeast through Germany, going many miles a day, you know, Germany was crumbling, and uh, we were about 50 miles north of Munich when the war ended, May 8th. You know, after VE Day and what have you, you were witness to seeing several luminaries or, oh, or, heavens, or, or folks yeah. that were real important oh, up yeah. close and personal. Tell us about it. When the war ended, we were, we were uh, too near Frankfurt. When I was doing occupation duty in Würzburg, uh, Patton was getting a talk, and he was, you know, very controversial <laughs> in many ways, old blood and guts. And so then he gave a, a talk, and uh, I, w- I went there. We had a march. I don't know how many miles. I, I liked the way he, he he knew that at that time, troops were being shifted all over the place. You know, he said, uh, he said. Uh, Greetings to the 99th Division, and damn near every outfit over here, you know. He had got it correctly. And uh, I think I got a pass to Paris, yeah. On the 14th of July, the Paris Great Bastille Day. And so I was there a couple of weeks later, and then the two atomic bombs dropped. And uh, that was the end of World War. So then I got, was admitted to American, American Shrivenham University. They set up an American university about 20 miles from Oxford in England. And I miraculously, I was admitted, you know, because there were just a few hundred of every group of thousands. And uh, but I had good academic credits at uh, a couple of colleges I'd been to. Was accepted. I was in Marseille, been transferred to Marseille. I went to Marseille one day and came back in the evening. I said, Mayhus, you're going to uh, England tomorrow. And I said, well, What's this all about? And then they told me when my app. So, so I did. And, and then what was great then was that the English, in appreciation or gratitude for all the Americans that had done during the war, uh, provided free train transportation for the American GIs or any place you want to go in England. And I took full advantage of that. I went to London several weekends and Canterbury and Stratford, Cambridge and uh, up to uh, Stonehenge, up to uh, Scotland. So I went to London and uh, with a buddy uh, for the Armistice Day and we knew big big crowds in the center of London. We couldn't see much. I think we just want to be there for the atmosphere. 
somehow we wended our way to the center of London, right where the, the center of the, of the festivities and celebrations were going to be. And there's a wall about five or six feet high there, and both both of us managed to climb up on it. And then when the festivities started in, who should come out of the government building across the avenue but Churchill? And I just looked at him, and my God, that man, I I just felt that he could... There was just something about the way he looked around the confidence that he could bear the entire weight of the British Empire on his shoulders, and that was impressive. And, and, that, and then across the street from where I was perched with perfect view, just up five or six feet up, there's no one in front of me, uh, a balcony in a government building, who should come up, but the king and queen of England, and Princess Elizabeth, now Queen Elizabeth, and Princess Margaret Rose, and and then many government officials. I said, I'm not, I don't know when I'm going to see so much greatness all together like that. And then I would go to the theater and see uh, famous British actors, and, and um, went to concerts. And, so I was very, very bu busy. Two months, I was just, I went to about, uh, in those two months, I went to about 70 different events, uh, in addition to taking a full full school course. After, after I got through with Sherman, Sh then I had to report back to my own unit, which was by then been transferred to Marseille. And so I had to go through Paris. Yeah. I went to the Chamber of Deputies, and there, whom should I see but Charles de Gaulle. So just all of these top people. And speaking of top, top people, after the war, I went to Columbia University, and then I went to Norway to study. So after all your experience in, in, in the military, how did that experience affect your life after you got out? Um, let me see, how could I, I, uh, I, th I think I segued into civilian life uh, fairly easily, fairly readily, uh, partly because I kept uh, uh, touch with my parents and family all the time, and uh, I went back to them, and then I went to college. Almost immediately after I got out of the army, you know, to Denver University because it was one of the few places where I had a, a semester beginning just when I got out of the army, and it was fairly nearby, just across Kansas too. So I spent the uh, spring and summer at Denver University. In the meantime, I applied to Columbia as a backup, Chicago University. And you probably know it's very, very difficult to get in the university because hundreds of thousands of uh, veterans want to take advantage of the GI Bill. And miraculously, both universities accepted me. That was Donald Mayhus, and um, you're listening to Let's Talk Vets on WJFF. Got some veterans news coming up for you right now. Got a few things anyway. In uh, Monticello, Dateline Monticello, on Veterans Day 1996, the Vietnam Veterans Memorial Fund unveiled a half-scale replica of the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in Washington, D.C., designed to travel to communities throughout the United States. Since the dedication, the wall that heals has been displayed nearly 600 communities throughout the nation, spreading the memorial's healing legacy to millions. Bringing the wall home to communities throughout the country allows souls enshrined in the memorial to exist once more amongst family and friends in peace and comfort of familiar surroundings. That traveling exhibit provides thousands of veterans who have been unable to cope with the prospect of facing the wall to find the strength and courage to do so within their own communities, thus allowing the healing process to begin. A 12-13 news release from Sullivan County Veterans Coalition in partnership with Sullivan County Chamber of Commerce announced that the traveling wall is coming to our area this year. The wall will be displayed at Rock Hill Fire Department Park September 11th through the 14th. Organizers are seeking donations, which are tax-deductible, for sponsorships and volunteers to help with setup, 
takedown, and to escort visitors needing assistance. Checks may be made payable to SCVC Wall Fund, P.O. Box 1527, Monticello, New York, 12701. For more information, you can contact Rocky Ortega at 845-665-3171, or you can email Rocky at rortega at yahoo.com, or Howard Goldsmith at 845-791-1030, and he can be reached email at goldsmithhow at yahoo.com. Dateline Washington, President Trump has promised to expand health care choices for veterans dating back to his election campaign, but this could be the year that his administration actually makes that happen. Veterans Affairs has been working on expanding community care rules for veterans' medical appointments since last summer when Congress approved the VA Mission Act. Details of that work are expected to be released early in this year, and a full set of new regulations is scheduled to be released in early spring. Among other priorities, the legislation mandated a retooling of the department's policies for veterans seeking private sector care, a massive undertaking that supporters have hailed as giving more flexibility and freedom to veterans who face long lines at VA hospitals and clinics. VA Secretary Robert Wilkie in December hailed the work as as a real transformational period at the department. And one quick update on veterans. No, that's not the quick update we were looking for. So that is pretty much the news for this evening. Stay tuned for Brad Mann. We wish to acknowledge the following people and organizations for making this show possible. Joan Page, Donald Mayhus, Sullivan County Veterans Coalition, Sullivan County Chamber of Commerce, and the Military Times. Thank you for joining us once again for Let's Talk Vets. Please let your friends know about this program and share with us your comments and suggestions for future shows. Also, send us your upcoming events so that we may get them in rotation on both our normal public service announcement segments and this program. You can send us an email at feedback at wjffradio.org or you can leave us a voicemail at 845-431-6500. Till next time. I'm your host, Staff Sergeant Doug Sandberg. Thanks for listening, and thank you for your service. Company dismissed. finest folk musicians is coming to Carnegie Hall soon, I'll tell you all about it, and we'll also be hearing some a cappella groups, some recent releases, and more British and Irish folk music. That's the Wagon Load of Monkeys with me, Graham Rice. Join me, please, on Sunday at 12 noon. There's a wind in from the desert. Support comes from you, and from the River Reporter newspaper in Narrowsburg, New York, riverreporter.com. Support comes from you and from the physicians and nurse midwives of Women's Health Center in Honesdale, Hamlin, Waymart, Carbondale, and Lords Valley in Pennsylvania. The Women's Health Center is a Wayne Memorial Community Health Center. WMH.org. This is WJFF Jeffersonville and W233AH Public Radio for Sullivan County, the Catskills, and Northeast Pennsylvania. Two minutes until 8 o'clock here on this Wednesday evening in Jeffersonville. Chance of snow tonight and that those blustery winds continuing. Uh, low of 23 tonight. All of that continuing into tomorrow, Thursday, where there will still be a chance of snow showers and still blustery. High of 24 tomorrow. No different from the low overnight tonight. Pretty frosty look ahead at all of the days coming up. Slight chance of snow showers tomorrow night and blustery, low of 11, and then a slight chance of snow showers again on Friday. Maybe clearing up Friday night, partly cloudy, low of 8 degrees overnight on Friday. Keep those faucets dripping, folks. Again, this is WJFF. Stay tuned right now for me, Brad Mann, on Neonatal Pulse. All new music for the next two hours. And then at 10 o'clock will be the big Insomniac show to lull you to 
the later hours of the evening and pick you up again with Return to the Source, your NPR jazz show at 11 o'clock. So stay tuned for all of that. A wonderful Wednesday evening of music here on Radio Catskill 90.5 FM. Stay tuned. Support comes from you and from the Law Office of John Ferrara in Monticello, New York, providing legal services in the areas of matrimonial and family law and criminal defense. John.Ferrara557 at gmail.com.